0: We are in Psalm chapter 133 today, still talking about Christian unity. So as simplistic as this sounds, let me ask this foundational question. Why should we care about Christian unity? Why, why be united? What's, what's it good for? Simple question, worth asking, worth looking into, and I want to spend then a few weeks addressing the whys, what the Bible says on why Christian unity is important. And so, this week, we're in Psalm 133. It's a short chapter. Lately, I've had a lot of long chapters. We'll do a short one today. Psalm 133, it's short. might take a little explanation, but I think it's worth the study. And so with that, let's just read it now. Psalm chapter 133. How good and pleasant it is, When brothers live together in unity, it is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down upon the collar of his robes. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life, forevermore. One of the shortest chapters of the Bible. But there's a lot in there. Now... I should, we should, there's a few things that need little explanation. Mount Hermon. Big deal in this chapter, what is Mount Hermon? Mount Hermon is a mountain in the northern part of Israel, uh, it, in the inheritance of the tribe of Dan. Uh, some, many scholars believe that that may have been the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus took a few of his disciples and, and met with Moses and Elijah right before his crucifixion explained for the first time to his apostles that there would be a crucifixion, that this was God's plan for the church, um, and that would make it an important mountain even if it wasn't already. Looking down upon all of Israel, you could stand on Mount Hermon and look down upon all of Israel, it was somewhat symbolic to Israel, of god 's land in general, that from it you could see kind of the corner of the land that it is in, you could see all of Israel, uh, therefore, a symbol of God's gift of the land, his grace to his people. Um, and so our, our author is, is, I think, therefore, our author is clear in this unity brings God's blessings, God's grace, his, his gifts. Churches, therefore, that lack unity will therefore lack God's blessings. And so I want to dig into that a little deeper uh, and, and discuss that a little bit more, a few, th- a few thoughts that come to mind from that. Uh, the first thing I would argue is that unity, Christian unity in particular, unity is what sets us apart from everyone else, or or it should. All this, so all this stuff about oil flowing like the dew of the mountain. I got to phrase it that way because if you call it mountain dew, you get in a different kind of trouble, especially in especially in this part of the country. Herman was an extremely tall mountain, and because altitude played such a factor, the air is so much cooler on top than down below. Uh, it was famous for its rather heavy dew. Mount Zion, he talked about the dew of Hermon falling on Mount Zion. Mount Zion is just another name for Jerusalem. Uh, so it, if, if Hermon represents the blessings of God and Mount Zion is where the people of God live, it's just kind of a way of saying God's blessings flowing on God's people. Uh, as for this stuff about Aaron's beard, which sounds a little, a little weird, uh, and the oil that is used, well, so think... Oil in the Old Testament, what's its purpose? A lot of times, oil is for anointing. Uh, When someone is set apart for a task of God, they are anointed with oil. And anointing means to be set apart, chosen. Remember what the other word for set apart or chosen is? It's holy. So oil represents giving to God, setting apart, becoming holy. Uh, Now Aaron... Moses' brother is the first high priest of Israel. The first man who is really set apart to God. Because you've got Israel set apart from the nations. The Levites set apart from the tribes of Israel. Aaron and his family set apart from the Levites. Just triply holy in many ways. Uh, and so Aaron is the first of these, of these high priests uh, that, that Israel will have. Uh, and and, in, and back then what we read, and we, and we read this in other, in other passages, in that culture the beard was, was a big deal for men. Uh, we read that when people wanted to insult people, they would, they would pull their beard out. The, the, the beard was this sign of, of pride, and, but in a good way, not, not necessarily in a bad way. Um, they, they, they hung their beards long, down on their robes, and the high priest wore special robes. There was a breastplate with 12 special stones on it that represented the 12 tribes of Israel. And when we read about the oil flowing off of Aaron's... There's just this, this imagery of, of God's blessings flowing based upon unity. All of this is a poetic way of describing being consecrated, set apart holy to God. The oil of Aaron's anointing representing total total, uh, consecration to the Lord. Uh, Oil poured onto the breastplate, onto the twelve tribes. Unity, but not just any unity, right? Unity under the purpose of God. This does represent unity. Uh, Holiness, a nation set apart to God. And that's what the church is supposed to be. God's people set apart to God, a holy nation as Peter calls us, holy, set apart to God, a people. It, that's what we're supposed to be. It, it's painful to say that I've, I've seen too many churches destroyed by a lack of unity within the church. I'm sure that you have too. It's always painful to see that. We're a team. We are family. Friends, ideally. You don't have to be friends with everybody in the church, but we recognize that we're on the same team. We're working together. Working together for one thing in particular, which is the will of God, not our own agenda. We work together towards God. Uh, And we need to be. The church is a home for God's people should be the place where we leave petty politics at the door not and by petty politics i don't just mean left and right you know i don't i don't just mean that that stuff that should be left at the door too quite frankly but i mean within our own church with our our own our own politicking our own agenda our own uh, our own desires we're not here for us we're here for god the church should be a cut above different than the world that people can put all that garbage selfishness too often we can allow we can allow human nature to overshadow god's grace in our lives and we can look just as petty just as negative just as as sinful as the rest of the world and then and when we're the rest of the when we're no different than the rest of the world we drag christ's name through the mud and if we cannot show the unity of love, who are we being examples to? Why, why would anybody join the church when we can't act Christ-like? They're not going to get anything out of it. If, if joining brings them nothing, no improvement in their lives, who would join? Why, why would we invite people to the same old thing? How can we proclaim the joy of his kingdom if we don't display it? I believe that the kingdom of God is now. Theologically, I believe that that the kingdom of God is, is heaven, that we're looking forward to it, but that the church is the kingdom of God now when we get it right. Unfortunately, there are churches out there that don't get it right, and that there are churches out there that are petty, and, and every church struggles with this. We're always going to be struggling with how, are we, how do we put, put aside human nature? How do we take on Christ? That struggle is real. It's a good struggle to have, provided that we're growing in Christ. But when we've given up the fight and we've just given in and said we're just going to be petty and human and it doesn't matter, well, at that point, the kingdom of God is not now for us because we're not saved from it, from, from the earth. The church needs to be different than the world by definition or it's not the church. And so one of the ways that we show that we are different is in Christian unity. And woe to us if it isn't there. Unity sets us apart. And again, that's code for we're holy. Unity, however, as we read in Psalm 133, unity also blesses us. Now, I don't know who wrote this. We, some of the Psalms, we know who wrote them. Some of them remain a little anonymous. Maybe King David? Israel was not united for, for most of David's lifetime. War... The twelve tribes did not always get along, quite frankly, they were borderline twelve countries. They, they really didn 't always get along. You know We can look at at the greatness of King David. we 've got to look at what David went through. first uh, Samuel Saul is out to kill his story is in first and second Samuel first Samuel saul 's trying to kill him most of the time the king david 's not king yet. The king is trying to kill him. So at the end of 1 Samuel, Saul has died. David is king. It's all smooth going from there, right? Not even close. His own sin with with Bathsheba and Uriah uh, uh, tanks part of his part of his reign. His own his own fault. Um, his son Amnon grossly abuses his daughter Tamar. Absalom, another son, kills Amnon. Raises up an army to civil war, overthrow King David. Um, He takes a census of the kingdom at one point, and he's not supposed to, and God doesn't want that. And all of Israel pays the price for his pride and his arrogance. David is a real messed up guy in the Bible. But I like him because he's also called a man after God's own heart, which means when I'm messed up, I'm not that messed up. And if there's hope for David to be a man after God's own heart... There's hope for me to be a man after God's own heart. Maybe David wrote this, because I do think that even within his own family, let alone within the nation, there were struggles of unity. But another theory has been posed that it might be King Hezekiah. Hezekiah is one of the best kings in the Old Testament. And one of the amazing things that he does, this is after the Civil War, after after the country has split into Israel to the north and Judah to the south. And there's a point where Hezekiah said to these two rival nations, let's just come together and worship God they hadn't been united for 200 years at this point, but they do. They put aside their differences and they come together in that one moment in unity under King Hezekiah's godly leadership. And so maybe Hezekiah wrote this because I do think that nobody quite got unity in the Old Testament, maybe ever, the way that Hezekiah uh, saw what God wanted from his people. Um, and and the people had to humble themselves, these two warring nations, to come together to do this. See, I think Israel struggled its whole existence to understand what God was offering them in his blessings. They just kept failing, and we, we read that, we know that. The Old Testament is the story of Israel, but it's not their success story, is it? That's one of the things I love about the Bible. The Bible doesn't give us all these people that are perfect and says, be like those guys. I'm so glad it doesn't. That would be depressing, because I'm not perfect. Instead, the Bible is full of people who mess up and then come back and beg for God's forgiveness, and God always gives it because he loves. And so I can look to people like David, and Hezekiah is not perfect, and Moses isn't perfect, and Aaron isn't perfect, and all of these people that aren't perfect, I can look to them and say they loved God. They didn't always follow him well, but they kept picking themselves up, dusting themselves off, saying, let's try it again, and God says, I love you for that. And that's what I love about the Bible. Israel kept falling, and the prophets kept encouraging them to come back. The Old Testament is, a, is story after story of failure. Abraham and Lot were not united. Jacob and Esau, they were not united. Jacob, who would be renamed Israel. Joseph and his 11 brothers... The, the founders of the 12 tribes of Israel, not united. In fact, three of the tribes didn't even want to go into the promised land at all, the land that God was giving them. Under Saul, there was disunity, and the tribes were warring against each other. Under David, that's the case. Under Solomon, they got along a little bit better, but they just weren't getting along following God, and the nation had a problem with pagan worship. And then under Solomon's son, Rehoboam, it was just done, and that's when it splits into Israel and Judah, why, why am I doing all of this history lesson on the Old Testament, which might seem a little overwhelming? The Old Testament is very disunited. It's very, very, very discordant. The people of God are not getting along like they should. The New Testament is the story of the church, and the church is supposed to be the answer to that. The, the imperfect people of God in the Old Testament were supposed to discover what that unity was under Christ in the church the church was the answer to disunity Christ brings unity but i'm not sure we're still imperfect aren't we we know what the goal is but we're still human and and, and the church is still often kind of split now let me let me say a word then on denominations i'm not anti denomination okay um i there are other denominations that are out there and i like to try to get along with them okay uh the Bible is not an easy book to interpret, and I and I believe that that effort should be put into understanding it, uh, and and I do think that there is a right and a wrong interpretation, but I'm not into you must believe this. I'm not into a, a theocracy, uh, someone telling you what to believe. Denominations do give people the cha- the freedom to. A, Agree to disagree, provided we get the basics down. God, God created the universe. Jesus was God on earth, the Son of God. He died for our sins. The Bible is true. You know, I, I can work with other churches that can at least teach that. We, we made. Let me, let me under. We're part of a movement of churches called the Restoration Movement. I stand behind the Restoration Movement, having looked at other churches, having gone to a few other churches. I think the Restoration Movement teaches truth. I, like what we, I, I agree with what we teach on baptism, on eldership, on responsibility, communion. I, I agree with, with, our, with our doctrines. I don't think doctrine is a bad word. I disagree with other churches on what they teach on some of those subjects. That doesn't mean I think that they're going to hell. I just disagree with their interpretation of the Bible. But I'll tell you, if these other churches tell people the Bible is true and you should read it, I can work with a church like that. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not against those churches that say this book is true, God is real, Jesus was his son who died for us. There, there's some room to work, and this is why I think this is kind of an exciting time today. For years in the U.S., denominations picked at each other. Methodists versus Lutherans versus Baptists versus Catholics, and, and all the denominations were picking more at each other when there are non-Christians out there that need to be saved. We have hit a point that there aren't a lot of Christians left in the country. The number of Christians in the U.S. has been plummeting. I think we're finally getting to that number where we're looking around and saying, I'm not sure that we can pick away at other people who go to church and read the Bible and say that they're the enemy when the truth is that the devil is the enemy and there are people out there that are dying without Jesus, and those are the people we need to be rescuing. So... I think that when we talk about Christian unity I think that there's talk about working with other churches that doesn't mean I agree with everything every other church teaches behind the pulpit there are, there there's going to be some disagreements on I think you interpreted that passage wrong let me say in the church I think there's going to be that's going to happen even within our own church where you will read a passage one way and you will read it in a certain way and I will read it in a different way and and that's okay. We'll talk more on that here in just a minute. Um, but I, I I think that when we keep our focus not on picking away at the church, but on saving the lost from Satan, I think when we keep that as our focus, we will be blessed. I think that God will. will I think God's grace will will sweep through the churches, not just this church. Will sweep through the churches uh, when we realize what our purpose is. I believe that God will bless us as a church. And so, the third thing I would say uh, is that unity is important to salvation. Um, it, it, it It is what Christ died to bring to his people. The reward for unity is God's blessings in this life and the next eternal life, and this is a big deal. Now, we talk about eternal life. In the Old Testament, we don't read much about heaven, Almost nothing. Uh, the people of Israel followed God because he was God. And he gave them the land of Israel. And that's why you, there's very little talk in the Old Testament about, and if you do this, you'll go to heaven. Very, very little. There's also very little talk about hell in the Old Testament. And if you don't do this, you will go to heaven. In fact, mo- it, un- until we get to the New Testament in Jesus, we don't read a lot about heaven or hell. Jesus is the one who introduces that subject to us in its, in its fullness. Um. David, King David, mostly speaks about the grave and how much he dreads it, um, because there because there just wasn't much understanding of of heaven and hell in the days of of David. Jesus brings that to us, and that's a big deal. Um, and 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 so I ask the question: Is unity an important part of our salvation? And I would think so. And I want to look at. Just briefly, at the book of Titus, Paul's letter to Titus, chapter 3, verse 9. Paul says, But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law, because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once, and then warn him a second time, and after that, have nothing to do with him. You may be sure that such a man is warped and sinful. He is self condemned. A person who divides the church that Christ fought to unite is condemned. The Bible says don't have anything to do with that person. Um, now, hear this. When, when we talk about a brother who refuses to give up their sin, how does the Bible say to treat that person? It says treat them like a pagan. Okay, how do we treat pagans? We love them. We invite them to church. We invite them to hear the gospel. We want pagans to come to church. But a person in the church who is divisive, the messages don't have anything to do with that person. Don't invite that person to church. Get them out of the church. Okay, The person who divides the church is worse than the pagan, is worse than the sinful person who refuses to give up their sin because... The person who divides the church is tearing apart the bride of Christ, ruining it for other people in the building, in the the church building, who are here on a Sunday morning, ruining it for the person. The pagan needs to be cured from from their sins, right? Jesus is the cure. The church offers that cure. The pagan comes to church to hear the cure for sin. And the divisive person is destroying that cure, is tearing apart the bride of Christ. Some churches do this excommunication thing where they kick people out uh, if they don't behave. Do I believe in excommunication? Well, biblically, I believe that there does come a point when someone who just keeps causing... You're supposed to warn them. But if there's someone who just will not quit tearing apart the church, yes, bluntly, I wouldn't use that word because the Bible doesn't use that word. But yes, I would. there comes a point when someone is just out to tear apart the church and you've, and, and you've given up all other options as the last resort, yes, you don't let the wolf live among the sheep. There does, come, there does come that point when someone is so divisive and so negative and is hurting everybody else that it's time for them to go. I, I've seen, I can think of examples. Um, I know of a church in the, in the St. Louis area that they had a new preacher and uh, he came in and they, they were a decent sized church. Right? They, but, but this preacher said, you've got about four, four or five families that it's all about them and it's all about what they want. And he said, this church could explode. This, this was a church that was running I want to say about 1,000. He said, this church could be many this church could be 10,000 if these four families weren't always getting their way. These four families weren't kind of driving other people away so they could stay in charge. And this church did explode in size. Once those families were told it was, you need to stop or you need, you need to leave, or you need to change your behavior. A friend of mine who preaches in Southern Illinois refers to this phrase. I like this phrase, "blessed attrition." He said, "You've always." He said, "So many churches have that one or two people that the church would explode if those people were gone." But maybe subconsciously, maybe they don't realize they're doing it, but they're making it all about them. They're they're selfish. They want it to be their church, not God's church. Um, unity. How important is unity? It is that important. It is that important that if, if someone is tearing apart the bride of Christ, there's not room for them in the, in the bride of Christ, in the church. Jason, are you saying that if I don't get along with my brothers and sisters, I am condemned? That depends upon what we're arguing about. If it's an argument about WVU versus Marshall, I don't care, right? That stuff doesn't matter. It matters to you. I get outside of the church. But when we're in the building, it doesn't matter. Republicans, Democrats, I, I don't care when we're in these. Well, I'll, I'll debate politics with anybody outside of these four walls. But in these four walls, that, doesn't, that stuff is meaningless. It doesn't matter. What we need to be united on is the gospel and the message of Christ. And if we're debating the important things, and again, I, iron sharpens iron. I am absolutely in favor of a good debate even on biblical things. I believe that part of coming to Christ, part of the plan of salvation is getting baptized. It's not something that you do after you become saved. I believe that it's something to become saved. And I would love to sit down and talk about that. If you, if you disagree with me, let's sit down. Let's do that iron sharpens iron. Let's, let's talk back and forth on that. I, 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 I like a good debate. I may have been one of the few people this last week that was watching the TV with popcorn <laughs> and watching the debate in, 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 in the House of Representatives. Um, I, I like a good debate. I don't mind a healthy, honest, good debate in the church. But when it's not for the sake of, of, of learning or, or challenging, when it's for the sake of winning my agenda, there's no room for that. My agenda doesn't matter in the church. We are here for God. There is not room for cross-purpose. We're on the same team. And if we don't think that we are, there's no room for that. There's no room for that level of animosity. So yeah, I think, I think Paul is saying when you have someone that that divisive, the only thing you can do as a church is, is to remove them. But, because such a person is going to hate heaven, right? Where we're all under the lordship of Christ and he is in charge all the time, forever. Heaven is a place where we are absolutely 100% family. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Um, uh, there will always be some issues on the Bible where we, where, where we read things differently, and again, I, I, I'm okay with that. Um, means, that means we're reading our Bible. If you read the Bible and disagree with me, at least I know you're reading the Bible, right? Um. Iron sharpens iron, but we should never disagree on who we serve or the value of his flock. Jesus loves the church, so should we. Jesus died for the church. Let us live for his church and protect her with all that we have. Our hymn of decision today is hymn number 256. If you love what Jesus did for you, but you haven't accepted him as your savior, I want to let's have that conversation. If there's a next step, if, if, if you, wherever you're at, whether you've been uh, attending the church for years and years and years, but you've never made that, that step to be a Christian, you're just an attendee. Um, we're at, not everybody's at the same place, but if you want to have that conversation of what comes next, um, I'd like to have that conversation. Likewise, if you are a Christian, If you don't know if you're a Christian, let's talk about that. If you are a Christian and you have been attending this church, but you're not a member, I think membership is a really great thing. I think it's that unity thing. It lets us know that we're on the same page. It lets us know that we're on the same team. And if you want to talk about church membership, I'd love to have that conversation with you as well. Uh, We want to be a healthy church united together under the Lordship of Christ and if that's a conversation we need to have, let's have that. Uh, you know, don't always stick around after church. I always stick around uh, because I like to see who needs to talk about something, and, and, and I'm here for you. So let's have that conversation if we need it. Thank you for listening. You can contact us at our website, firstchurchofchristelkins.com, where you can also find out more. Have a nice week.